Hello, I'm Rachel Schusterman, and you're listening to episode 32 of A Positive Podcast, a podcast where we discuss ideas and concepts on our emotional well-being and how we can educate ourselves to be a better version of ourselves. Thank you so much to all my listeners who have reached out and send messages and text messages through my website or through my Instagram handle, Positive Coach, sharing how much you have learned and gained from this podcast. It truly means a lot. If you've enjoyed any of the past episodes, please consider becoming a supporter by making a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. It can be a donation of $1, $5, or $10 a month. All you need to do is click on the link in the show notes to sign up. Thanks for considering. In addition, if you're curious to hear more information about a positive coach and what positive coaching can do for you, or to set up your free consultation, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. So have you heard about TLR, the living room? Well, neither did I till about a year ago. And in today's episode, I have the privilege of sitting down with Menachem Poznanski, an incredible human who runs an incredible organization, TLR, or as other people know it, the living room. I had the privilege of meeting Menachem about 18 months ago on a very special evening, which was the celebration of the one-year anniversary of our dear son's sobriety date. And that moment that experience, I knew I needed to find out more information about TLR and what it was, and then share it with all of you here on this podcast. In this episode, Menachem shares and introduces us to the living room and the impact it's having on so many people. It's an interesting conversation that I think you will find interesting. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I had the honor to meet Menachem Posansky this past January as my son celebrated his first year anniversary of his sobriety. And that was when I was first introduced to TLR, otherwise known as the living room. And the energy and the feeling, the love, the connection, the friendships that I experienced that night that I witnessed, I, have, I felt like I'd never seen anything like that before. Mm. And at that night, I, you know, I, I feel like this resource and this program is something that many people don't even know about. They don't even know that it exists. And I knew that night that I wanted to learn more about this program, about the people behind the scenes who make this all happen. And I wanted to get the word out. And it's interesting. I actually asked you that night, do you guys advertise? How do people know about this? And you said, actually, it's all word of mouth. And the room was full. And it was such a special moment. I mean, personally, for me, it was special. It was just so absolutely incredible. So if you don't mind to just let's dive right into it. Can you begin with sharing us with us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about about your background, how TLR came to be? Just give us a little bit of an intro. Okay. Well, first of all, it's it's a great honor to be here and hopefully um, this will be uh, useful to people. First of all, just to talk about what, thank God, we've been able to do with TLR and how it can be replicated. Um, but also to get the good word out. Like you said, we don't really promote the program. That's part of like, uh, it's partially like a, a functional thing, but it's also like an energy thing. Uh, people that come to TLR are people that are really interested in getting well, and we're engaging people um, in the process of like helping them to help themselves. That's like the, the basis of our model. It's not the only way to engage people. And it's, and, um, and I believe in other ways of, interacting with people and other kind of frameworks. It's not like I have this like on a philosophical level, but um, 
one of the things that makes TLR what it is, is that the people that are coming want to be well, and they have ownership of that. And our job and our role is to fill the, the gaps and kind of create a glue to maximize what they're doing. So I'll give you a little bit of, a, I guess, a background. So I'm, I'm uh, thank, thankful. I'm a social worker. Um, and in 2005, 2004, 2004, in 2004, I was, um, I was, recently out of school and I got a call about working at an organization that I knew I had heard of before, which was Our Place in Brooklyn. Our Place uh, has a drop-in center for boys and girls in Flatbush. And it's similar to other programs in the different Jewish communities, which is a place where teens can go and they can get support and they can play pool and they can have fun food and they can talk to somebody and they can feel good and have a place, particularly those that are kind of in the at-risk frame or the kind of risky behavior kind of phase out of school, thrown out a place that they can feel at home. So that that's what I knew of our place. Um, but um, our place, one of the things that had occurred was that our place was working with teens. And some of those teens ended up in, in rehab and like drug treatment. And when they came back, they couldn't really go to our place because it wasn't safe for them. So they had tried a different, a few different like frames to try to like, create a space for those kids to have a place to come. Um, and it was mostly teenagers and they hadn't worked out well because it's a, it's complicated to create the right dynamic. Um, you want a nice, hip, fun, supportive, loving young people's environment, but you want it to be safe and you want it to be organized and you want it to be structured. Um, so they, they um, invited me, they gave me the privilege to come work and try to create something. And I was partnered with Akiva Perlman, Dr. Akiva Perlman, who's a very, very well-known um, today, very, very well-known. He's one of my dearest friends, and he's one of the finest people uh, that you'll find around. He's a remarkable clinician and, and amongst I actually, things. I had the privilege of, of, of interviewing him. So yes. Okay. So you, you, you got to feel him. his- uh, His love, his kindness. His, yes. Yeah, it's, it is him. Yes. So Kiwi, Kiwi and I, I went to school together, and we knew each other from- from our adolescence, but uh, but they partnered us together with a, a woman by the name of Gittel Fulman, who's still the associate director of the living room. And the three of us were tasked with trying to create something for this population to try to create a space where young people who are coming out of substance use treatment can go and get the support that they need. And what emerged over a series of years was the model that we have at the living room, which is the living room. We started out as a small kind of um, storefront um, on Quentin Avenue in, in Marine Park, which at that time was a very not Jewish neighborhood today is like in the center of, you know, it's the center of the Marine Park Jewish community. And uh, we're kind of on the outskirts. And over time, it kind of evolved and developed. And we focused on how we could be most helpful to these people in a way that empowered them to engage their lives, which is what the living room is. Um, you know, the living room is not trying to create a space where they can escape from the world. And it's not trying to create a safe space where they can be safe from the world. It's actually trying to create a platform where they can, A, strengthen their recovery, um, but also launch into life. So we focused in on, we're focused in on the, the young adult emerging adult community, which is the most predominant kind of community that's coming out of substance, substance abuse treatment and other forms of recovery, um, you know, 
anywhere from, I mean, our, our tagline is 18 to 35, but it's, you know, most people in their early twenties, 20 to 25 who are, you know, who want to get well. And um, so, and it's basically evolved into a, a, an organization in and of itself. We have centers in, in Muncie, in Brooklyn, in the five towns, we have an, uh, an affiliated group in Lakewood, Lakewood centers in the plans. God willing, that'll be soon. We recently opened in South Florida, a center. Um, and it's a network. It's a community. It's become, um, so the living room, what is the living room? Living room is an organization. And I am privileged to run the organization, but it's also a family and a community. Like you talked about, it's, it's evolved into something more. And, and we in the organization know that we're just one cog in this wheel. Our job is to foster that community, but the community itself is an organism of its own. Uh, our job is to service that community. So that's what the living room is. It's a family, it's a community, and it's an organization. And so just, just to ask a few questions on that. Yeah, sure. Um, it's open to males and females, correct? Yes, it's a co-ed program. It's a co-ed environment. And specifically, when do you meet, just just generally speaking? Okay, so um, we're open. Uh, in Brooklyn, we're open on, on Sundays and Thursdays. And on Tuesdays, we're open in our satellites on, in Muncie and in, and in the five towns. Are there requirements in order to come and show up? Right. So, so our program is for men and women, 18 to 35 Jewish who are seeking or in recovery, predominantly from substance abuse. However, we try to be as broadly inclusive as possible. So for example, um, we're open from our, our doors are open from 745 to 11 o'clock on the nights that we're open Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday. And we host a meeting, a 12-step style meeting. Every time that we're open, that happens at around 8.30. Really, anybody's welcome to come to the meeting. We don't really restrict people from coming to the meeting, but we're also not shy about the fact that we are a young people's environment and the meetings are framed that way. And the safety, security, and vibe of, a young, of the young people is our most important component. So so we don't restrict people from coming. We're really also a substance abuse focused program, meaning the function of a living room is to assist people who are in substance use recovery to remain clean from substances. And the reason I say that is because one of the things that's happened in the last five years, I would say, in the Jewish community is the recognition of so many other frames of addiction that exist. And we are blessed to have many members that are in recovery from other forms of addiction. Um, and, and that's wonderful. Um, and we're very, very happy about that, particularly young people, um, really people over, over our age gap. It's, it's not really a good fit, but, but, um, but part of what we try to stay true to is that the most significant thing we're battling is substance abuse and substance abuse when it manifests into addiction because it's dangerous. And we are a life-saving measure. We are trying to keep young people. Our goal is to get people first to a year clean and then to five years clean. That's our goal. If we can help a young person achieve five years of, of, of abstinence and more than abstinence, but emotional, spiritual life recovery, then we've done our job. We've done a great job. We've given them a great chance to have a lifetime recovery, which is our goal. And because drugs are dangerous and being a drug addict is dangerous. However, if we can be useful to people in other recovery frames, particularly young people, we are happy to be. So for example, it's a kind of, kind of a complex question, but like oftentimes when young people come in 
who are seeking other forms of recovery, recovery from other things like related to areas of intimacy or you know even food or gambling. Oftentimes we encourage them to seek out recovery first before coming to the living room, get a good balance. The living room is a great place to find community for people that are in recovery. It's not a great place for people to find recovery other than substance use, other than if there's a substance use. If there's a substance use orientation, if that's a part of someone's story, the living room is a great place to both find recovery and find community. Right. That's, a, that's an incredible piece that you just said there because um, you know, the typical 12-step program and the AA does look a little different. It, I mean, I saw the meeting, it seemed similar in, in, in some yeah. areas, but in some areas it seemed different. So what I'm hearing you say is that to, for somebody who's struggling with an addiction to get the help that they need, then they'd come to the, t- to the living room to get the support and the, the community. And, oh, here are other Jews that are going through similar things that I'm going through. Right, right. So, I mean, we, we are very supportive and part of our mission is to help young people access things like 12-step recovery, like AA and NA, where I'm I'm very enamored. I wrote a book about the 12 steps. I'm like very enamored by it. I think it's a wonderful resource for many people. It's not, not everyone loves it. What's the name of your book? Hi everyone, this is a quick interruption for a quick ad. So bear with me for 30 seconds. Thanks for listening. Now back to our show. It's called Stepping Out of the Abyss, which is a Jewish guide to the 12 steps. Um, and, and it's one of two books, thank God. I wrote a different book called Consciously, Six Steps to Living Vibrantly with Our Creator, which is a book about utilizing mindfulness practices to develop a conscious awareness of God's presence in your life, um, which is reflective in like the 12-step recovery program. It's kind of like a how-to based in Judaism for practicing the 11th step of the 12 steps, which is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. So the idea was Jewish people that are in recovery, but also other people, because many people that are not in recovery have read the book, thank God, and and they've benefited from it. But the idea there is that people in recovery who want to practice that, but would like something that's rooted in like, uh, you know, ancient classical Jewish sources. So that's the second book. But the first book we wrote was Stepping Out of the Abyss. And part of the reason we wrote that, because 10 years ago, there was a lot of misinformation and confusion about the 12 steps. And we really wanted to give a resource, not to people that were not for addicts that were looking for recovery, but more for family members, for clergy, for mental health professionals to really understand what's this whole 12 step thing. Is it just going to a church basement and hanging out with non-Jews? And is that going to be exposure? And those are all considerations to have. However, the 12 steps are a rich methodology for transforming one's life and recovering from, you know, the way that it's framed in the classic AA literature, recovering from a hopeless state of mind and body to a hopeful state of mind and body. Um, And it's, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable system. It's, it's great. I'm a big believer. So part of what we do in the living room is helping young people to access 12 step recovery in a way that's enriching and positive, trying to account for some of the inherent challenges that that exists for young people, for Jews, uh, for young Jews that are engaging the 12 steps, because there are inherent challenges. That's like a whole separate conversation. We could talk about that, but, but, but trying to account for those and then creating in and of itself, a lot of support. So 
what I what I was kind of framing before is that someone who's coming into recovery, someone who's seeking recovery from addiction, there's kind of two things that they need. And this is something that the 12 steps talk about. They talk about, um, you know, in, in, there's the recovery component, which is like the, the, the inner work that a person has to do to develop the capacity to a retain their mindset of dedication to their recovery and, and also um, unearth and resolve or heal or begin to, the process of healing the inner suffering that's driving a lot of the addiction. And sometimes that takes therapy, but some of it's in the 12 steps. And then there's like the fellowship, which is the community, which is, has been shown not just in the 12 step frame, but also in every frame of recovery that fellowship, connectedness, community, and this is a human thing. Everyone needs, everyone wants to be part of a shul. Everyone needs a congregation. Everyone wants, needs to feel part of a community. And that's key for people to have recovery. So when it comes to substance-based addiction, we offer much more, a lot of the first, not all of it, because our goal is to get people connected to other resources, but there's a lot of recovery there. And when it comes to the second, um, which is the community, that that's something that we can be more broad and we can be more broadly helpful, which thank God we, we've been able to, and that's kind of expanded. And now we've started other things, we started this other project called The Light Revealed, which is kind of specifically focused on creating Jewish content that's recovery-informed and mental health-informed. So that's something that we're really, and that's very broad. That's That can be accessible to um, many people, not and not just people in recovery, like the book. That's where kind of where it started with consciously. You know, I wrote it really for people in recovery, and then other people were benefiting from it. So I was like, okay, so how can we do this also? Because there's no reason why... The, the richness that you find in the recovery frame can't be useful for people all over the place without them necessarily doing the 12 steps, you know, just from benefiting from it. That's so interesting. Something that you said, I, I, I read somewhere and I, I can't, um, I can't say that I know this is true or just a myth, but I heard somebody say in the name of Rabbi Tversky that if he were to ever meet the founders of AA, he would sue them for plagiarism of the Tyra because he felt that so much <laughs> of it was rooted in Judaism. But yes. But um, I mean, I know for myself, when, the literature that I'm reading now for in Al-Anon and all, you know, educating yeah. myself, um, I see so much of Judaism and so much of, yes, and, and the sadness is that they are going into a church basement, but for my, even for me, just going into an Al-Anon meeting, sitting across from a, a, a um, cross is, is challenging, but I know what I'm there for and I'm coming in for, you know, very specific and it's healing and it's it's an incredible thing. So right. imagine imagine for these these um, teens and young adults coming into an area where they feel at home and they feel comfortable um, at the, at the living room. That's so powerful. I also know that there's a piece with regard to food that you guys are big on too, that you make it really, <laughs> it's a draw for them. I would just say. Right. That's a big part. I mean, that's a, that's an hour place on the whole organizational thing. And that's driven by our leadership, um, which is like, we want people coming to our programs to not feel like they're on the B team. They're on the A team, you know, they're getting the best food and they're the best in the nicest environment. And I, I mean, you're at the living room. It's a beautiful space. We're very fortunate. Um, it was a family foundation family's name is the Capellius family. They, they dedicated our Brooklyn location, which is beautiful. It's an exquisite, beautiful place. And part of that is because we want the place to be beautiful. We want people to feel like these are the people that are, want help, seeking help, getting help, helping others, which is a big part of TLR. I'm saying, you know, you were there for your son's anniversary, you know, and, and, and you heard, you know, like 
that's the message. If someone gets a year sober, it's great. You got sober, so you could be helpful to others. This is a family. This is a community. That's a big part of what we believe in. It's a big part of the framework of the 12 steps. And as you said, you know, every, every major component of the 12 steps is an idea that's rooted in Judaism. I mean, Chase Taub talks about this extensively in his literature. He's very, very explicit about it. And he explains why, because the, the framers of the 12 steps were just drawing from a movement of, you know, non-Jews that were seeking to get back to the roots of Christianity, you know, and Chase says this, Rabbi, Rabbi Taub says this explicitly, he's like the roots of Christianity or Judaism. So it's not a surprise that they got, they went back to the roots and that's where they ended up. So it's, it's not a surprise, but really one of the other things about the 12 steps. So that's one component to realize that they were trying to strip away all of the religious aspects of Christianity and look for the underlying principles. And that's why, and that, that's one component. And then the other component is that the framers of the 12 steps focused on what worked. There was a trial and error period of five years where they kind of figured this out and they, anything that didn't work practically, they dropped. So it's really not surprising that they went in and they looked for underlying spiritual principles, spiritual truths, and then measured it by what worked. And what emerged is something that's very much rooted in our spiritual heritage in the Torah. Right? It's not surprising at all. If you believe in the Torah as a Torah's MS, then it's not surprising that a bunch of people got together and they weren't all Christians because the early group, there were two groups in AA. I was talking to someone else about this. And there's a, there's a, it's a misnomer that it's like fully rooted in Christianity, even though a lot of them were Christians, but there were two primary groups in AA. One was in, in the early phases of AA and AA is the, the, the original source of the 12 steps. One group was in Akron and it was predominantly Christians. Um, but the group in New York was a much more diverse group that included Jews, a Muslim, uh, people that were atheists, agnostics, Christians. I mean, it was a group of people, humans, who were getting together, drawing from their spiritual heritage, figuring out like the core underlying principles, and then measuring it by what worked. And what, they, what emerged was a very intuitive system that Rabbi Tversky, you know, spent his life kind of proving is 100% rooted in the teachings of Hasidus and Musser. It's it's 100% rooted there and consistent with that. It's not shocking. It's very human. They're very human interventions. So to me, it's, it's very novel. I'm very thankful that we have that. I'm not like pushing anyone to go to a 12-step program, but I think we all have what to learn from that. And I think that we as a people can look back at this remarkable system that has helped tens of millions of people overcome a state of abject hopelessness and say, okay, well, that is something we can draw from. And, you know, what are they touching on that we can really connect with? And it's, it's really, it's really, it's really remarkable. I think there's a lot to learn. And I think that's part of, that's part of what makes TLR um, really special, but more than anything, what makes TLR special is what you said, which is the community, the members, the sense of camaraderie, the way in which they watch each other's back, the way they connect, the way they feel, the way they accept, you know, you see this in other institutions, but it's definitely not the norm, you know, because as, as humans, we're so guarded, you know, if you're not from my particular, like little tiny strain of, you know, whatever, my street in Crown Heights or like the area of the five towns that I'm in, then like you're on a different team, you know, right. but here it's like the exact opposite. Everyone's on the same team and it creates this remarkable bonding and connectedness. Um, part of what does that is, you know, and this gets into like why we don't promote is because there are so many people that we can't help. 
the living room is not built to help everybody. It's not, it's built to help a very, very specific group of people. And we get calls all the time. Oh, my, my, you know, my son is 22 and he, you know, he has a lot of the issues that these kids have. Can they come? And unfortunately we can't help everybody because the, the sense of bonding and commitment is the way in which these people are recovering from this particular issue. Um, part of why I'm doing like things like the light revealed is because I want to be able to create a broader community um, and amongst other things and other things that other people are doing is to create a broader community of just Jewish people that want to actively seek spirituality and wellness and personal development. And I think that's happening. I think that more than just what I'm doing or what we're doing at the living room, you know, there's so much good, there's so many good things going on in the world. I mean, I want to just interrupt for one second and yeah. ask you a question. Sorry. You mentioned, no, it's fine. You mentioned, um, we can't help everyone. So, I mean, what came, when you said that, what I'm thinking is, is, well, parents want to help their children. It's great that they want to help their children, but it's the child that needs to want to get the help. I mean, yeah. we can't, we can't, you know, bring somebody to recovery. They have to actually want the recovery. So what mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say is, is that the living room is really geared for people that are in recovery. Like once yes. you're there, but, and at the same time, I'm sure that if people came in there that were just dabbling with it and trying to get a sense and, you know, maybe they were in full on addiction, but they're coming in there for, let's say a friend that's, you know, celebrating a year or something, you know, something else that it could be inspiring to them. So you, I'm not, you're not, kicking anybody out. But what I'm hearing you say is that we can't help everyone. Not everyone's going to get what they need from it because they may not be at that point. Am I hearing correctly? Yeah, no, no, you're hearing hundred percent correctly. It's a, it's an interesting thing because the intention, the, the oftentimes the impulse is to want to be the most helpful to everybody. But one of the things that we noticed over time is that by humbly accepting that re reducible point that you, that your mission is to focus on, it allows you to be maximally helpful, helpful, you know, which I don't think is like appropriate in every frame, but I think that it is appropriate in most frames and is very important, particularly when you're talking about addiction recovery. Cause I, I you know, in some ways addicts are like everybody else, but more, that's a line that you'll hear in the 12 yes. step rooms, like the kind of issues that addicts struggle with are the kind of issues that everyone struggles with. However, there is an aspect to addiction that's unique and specific and, and, uh, and part of the framework of achieving recovery is the awareness of what I can and what I cannot do. You know, that's like the, the famed serenity prayer, except the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a prayer to, to God to help us do that. You know, and that's like, that is the foundational, you know, Bill Wilson, who's the founder of AA, said, called that the AA prayer. It's the essence of the 12-step kind of orientation, which this is not about the 12 steps per se, this is about recovering from addiction, but the 12 steps is very effective at helping addiction. So it gives you an insight into addiction that part of overcoming that challenge is the admission of the areas over which I don't have control and then focusing on the areas that I do have control, which can be helpful to anybody, but is vital for people when dealing with addiction. It's vital. It's vitally important to know what you can't do and to know what you can do. This gets back to like, if you want to, but like this gets back into the whole idea of powerlessness, which is a big part of like the 12 step framework and people have a hard time with, because it seems like admission of powerlessness is saying that there's something wrong with you. It's limiting you. And how could you be helped through a limiting principle? But in fact, there's a, a certain um, irony to the fact that the foundational 
limitation of powerlessness is when I and when the individual admits that they're powerless over this area, they are admitting that they're powerful over every other area of their life. And then in the process of, I mean, in, rec in recovery, explicitly in the 12 steps, but in enemy recovery, by admitting the powerlessness in this area, they're admitting powerfulness in other areas and then taking responsibility for those areas. That's how that's, the so, that's so powerful. I, I never heard that so clearly enunciated like that. So uh, I'm just trying to recap that for a second. By admitting that I'm powerless over something, whatever it is, whatever the addiction is, fill in the blank, I am also admitting that I'm powerful over every other areas of my life. And that right. can help me overcome this powerlessness. Right. See, like, I think, I think, and this is a frame that I, that I kind of for my own, for myself, I think the admission of powerlessness is a constant ongoing process for people in recovery where they're, they, we, people in recovery, humans, all of us struggle to admit powerlessness. It's difficult to admit powerlessness because it's humbling and it's difficult. However, so it's an ongoing practice to constantly identify areas where we are trying to exert control where we don't have it, right? That's a constant evaluation. However, part of that evaluation is the acknowledgement that it doesn't mean that I'm powerless over everything. It means there are areas of my life that I have control. There are areas of my life that I have influence, right? I don't mind that control, but I have tremendous influence. And part of recovering is the willingness to take ownership over the areas that I have control and influence and abandon and have faith and trust in the areas that I don't. That's the spiritual practice of like powerlessness in the 12 steps, I think in my mind. So, and in that frame, it's, it's not a, a defeatist and kind of disempowering, you know, esteem sapping exercise. It's actually the opposite. It's actually a humble, admission that's affirming and encouraging saying you can i mean even you can have power it's even like when a when an addict when a drug addict walks into a 12-step room and they say you have to admit your powerlessness powerless but what you need to do is you need to do your best not to use today well which one is it am i powerless or am i not using today right well you might be powerless over whether you use today but you can at least make an effort not to use today that you have power over and then maybe tomorrow, if you get if you don't use today, you might be able to get two days together. Or 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 like someone will be struggling with not using. And again, this is just as an example. Someone's struggling, and this has roots in Jewish texts also. So it's not, it's very much not novel. Someone's struggling with not using for the day. So okay, well, why don't you can you just not use for the hour? Right? Can you how about we just I, I hear you, but how about can you make a commitment not to use for an hour? Now that sounds like the opposite of powerlessness. But it's not. It's exactly the, it's it's the admission that I can't stay clean for the rest of the day, but I can stay clean for an hour. That's such a great because I've heard people say to me, you know, that that's their one issue with um with 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 um AA is that I don't want to come in and call myself an addict and say I'm powerlessness. It's so um it it takes away my own you know strength, my own. But the way you're you're explaining it is actually quite the opposite. It's actually I'm powerful. I, right. I'm actually powerful and independent in certain areas. And I can choose where I want to exert that effort. That's 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 really well, I, it's it's not even about choosing where to exert the effort, it's choosing to take ownership over the areas where that power exists. Okay. Sometimes we don't like the area we have power. We want yes. our we want power in areas that don't exist. 
and and don't like the, the the areas of power where it does exist because it feels like a burden or it feels or it's boring or it's not you know it's not as as exciting exciting you know and the areas that we'd like power you know that's very difficult it's very humbling to admit that i mean it's really not humbling like like we all there are all there are areas of powerlessness in the life of literally every human being the most i mean it's just funny because it probably didn't exist 150 years ago but the most powerful human on the planet is the president of the United States of America. And he has many areas over which he has zero power. Power, Yeah. Right. It's such a funny thing that God did in the world. It's such an interesting frame, right? There's no one with absolute power. You have like tyrants who have absolute power over a particular country, but, the, absolute. Right. but there's no absolute power. Everyone has areas of powerlessness. And the more that we fight that, the worse our lives get. Right. And in, it also strips away the possibility of faith and trust and muna and bitachon because the muna and bitachon, those express themselves most explicitly in the areas where we don't have power. The areas we have power, like that's hishtadlis. That's like where we're supposed to, okay, you have power, then do something about it, right. right? The areas of faith and trust are the areas that we don't have power or we have limited power or we only have influence. I mean, we have the ability to influence what happens, but we can't control everything. So what well, we got to do our part and just trust the people in our lives or trust you know, so that gets getting back to what you asked about, about like in recovery, the person has to be willing to help themselves. So that's yes and no. You know, and I, I did spend a lot of time working with parents in my career. I don't really do it anymore. Um, maybe at a later point, but it's just a move towards a different place. But part of that process for parents is the admission of powerlessness over their children's addiction, but they have power and influence that they can own without trying to control their kids or trying to coerce or manipulate, right? They, they can own their own agency, right? You can have their own sense of self and not losing their sense of self. Because sometimes when you're in relationship with an addict, it feels like it's either everything or nothing. Either I have all the power or none of the power. And the whole, I mean, the whole framework of Al-Anon and the whole codependency, all the literature there is focused on exerting influence and power where the power exists and letting go of influence and power where it doesn't exist to disengage from a process that's rooted in power, which ultimately manifests in manipulation, which only makes the addict worse. Right. And it's so, it's so interesting because um, I have been, I'm, I'm new to Al-Anon, but I've been so focused on the powerlessness. I have not been focused on where I have power. And I think that's such a great, um, addition. Like I want to learn more about that. I want to go educate myself more about that point that you just made there. Cause it's, it's really speaking to me. I'm really, I'm really, you know, getting a lot from that. So I appreciate that. I just want to tell you that. So thanks for that. Sure. Um, would you be open to sharing with us some success stories from TLR? Like, are you, are you able to share with us anything like that? Cause you mentioned a goal would be getting somebody from, um, you know, to one year sobriety or to five years of sobriety. That's like, yeah. that seems like a goal of the TLR, but with regard to, you know, actual success stories, what, what does success look like for TLR? Um, well, <laughs> there's two frames. I mean, part of it is success look for TLR looks like um, we do a great job and people feel comfortable coming in, right? That's our success. And that frames, that frames back to what we were talking about before. Like our job is to create the environment for people to do well. We're trying to exert our influence in the areas that are reflective of what's going to be most most helpful to them. And then their job is to be awesome at their recovery. Um, but 
but thank God. I mean, there's been, so thank God we've been able to do that. I mean, some of, some of the successes of TLR is the expansion and growth of our community. Every area where we are, have opened five towns, Muncie, Lakewood, we have an affiliate. It's not an official space yet. Five towns. Those occurred because TLR members moved. They, they, they grew up, they got married, they moved to different areas, multiple members of TLR. They wanted to benefit from the framework that we had, and therefore our expansion itself is an, is an outgrowth of our successes. Thank God. And I'm very, very grateful about that. Part of what we do, and this is also an outgrowth of success, one of the most important things that TLR does is that we create a space where Jewish people that got clean and sober at a young age, between 18 and 35, can come to TLR and know that there's a place where they can be of service and helpful to, and help to others. That's a very unique thing. They can go to an AA meeting and they might meet another Jew there. They might not. But part of what we do is create a space where, because being of help is such a vital part of recovery, creating a space where Jewish young people who got sober between the ages of 1835 can come and be a volunteer and help out and speak to people after the meeting is, is one of the most important things that we do. It may be even more important than the work we do with the new people is creating that space where they can be helpful in, a, in such a, a vibrant and useful way. And for that reason, we say all the time, like every TLR member, every member of the TLR community is a volunteer for TLR. So that's part of our success, thank God. And that's very gratifying and very wonderful. But, um, you know, weddings are very meaningful. People getting married, people being able to be at that point, graduations, um, you know, I'm, Thank God there are a number of TLR members that outclass me in education today with PhDs, a number, which is like very, very uh, in mental health field, which is very gratifying, very, very wonderful. Um, we have 60 couples that are part of our network, the network of TLR. And of those couples, um, more than half are TLR members who have moved on, gotten married, and are now still remain active in TLR. Most of their, the way in which they're active is attending our, our semi-annual retreats um, where the TLR family kind of gets together on the whole because most, we don't necessarily see each other all the time. People are in their different areas. They don't necessarily see each other, but twice a year, really three times a year, we get together, we have a Shabbos together. It's an intensive, immersive experience. And the, you know, most of the TLR family comes and we have a lot of the opportunity for the couples to come and they can come. And that's a remarkable thing because, you know, when you're a, a young person, you're a 19 year old kid, Jewish kid, and you're coming out of addiction and you just spent a year in a treatment center and then a halfway house surrounded by non-Jews. And you're thinking, I am never going to be able to have a Jewish family. And then you come to TLR and I could tell them from today till tomorrow that, yeah, yeah you could, you could, you could, but then you come to TLR and there's like a hundred little kids, like little kids. Like we have, we spend a lot of money for babysitting because we have like many, many kids coming on these retreats whose parents are amazing, wonderful people and they're active parts of their community, which is another gratifying success. No one else, people in their lives don't know that they're in recovery, not that they're hiding it because right. we don't have to hide in the shadows, but they're also not promoting it because they also don't, you don't have to like, 
you get to a place in recovery and you're the most favorite thing about you is not necessarily that you're in recovery. It's something you might share with somebody if it's useful. And it's something you might share with somebody that's close with you because it's important to you, but you're so much more than that. You're a father and a wife and a husband and a mother, you know, and a, a boss and an employee and a, a, a an active member of a shul, a, a member of Hatzalah, a member of, uh, you know, um, what's the Haverim, you know, uh, someone who delivers Tomchei Shabbos, like that's who you are. And that, and, and you're in recovery also. And that's a very meaningful part. That part gets expressed most significantly when you get to help other people, um, which is very active. That might be, that might be the most, uh, now the ask, the most gratifying part is when I see TLR members being sponsors, 12-step sponsors for other TLR members. And then those TLR members being sponsors for other TLR members, watching like four or five generation, so to speak, down of people actively working the 12 steps, completing the 12 steps, and then taking somebody else to the 12 steps. Not because the 12 steps is everything. I'm a big fan, but, but just to watch a young person who previously couldn't go a day without using drugs begin and complete a process and then be able to become a mentor in that process is like remarkable. It's, I mean, it's like, it's like chills. It gives you chills. It's really amazing. You said something so, so, so I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you no, said no, no, not at so all. Amazing there about, I could tell them from today to tomorrow that, yeah, you can come, you can come out of a year of recover of, you know, treatment and, um, you know, halfway houses and you can, and being around non-Jews all the time and you can have a Jewish life, but you could say that, but you're showing them. So they're coming to a, 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 a Shabbaton or a Rosh Hashanah event, wherever you're doing your TLR and they're seeing children. And they're seeing spouses and they're seeing families. And it's like, wow, I can have this. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. And that's that's incredible. One of the one of the most, it's a very powerful thing. One of the most powerful components of recovery, and we were talking about this last week or maybe a week and a half ago at delivery. It's a very powerful idea. One of the most powerful parts about recovery is that people come in new people come in and they feel like they're hopeless. And they look at other people in the room who share that they were in the same spot and they feel a sense of hope. So that the newcomer gets a sense of hope from the old timer, the person that's been there for a long time. But then something else really powerful happens, which is that the old timer watches the newcomer come in and he sees someone who's hopeless. And then a year later, six months later, a year later, he looks at somebody who's a transformed human being. And the old timer is reminded how remarkable it is. So there's a there's kind of like a bilateral process going on in this kind of recovery frame of wellness and inspiration that's based on like facts on the ground. It's not like a nice schmooze. It's not a nice little vart that makes you feel good. It's like real stuff on the ground. It's really remarkable. It's so powerful, you know, Very powerful. it's, yeah, yeah, it's really, really, really meaningful. Really appreciate you sharing all this. If somebody is interested in, um, getting, you know, attending a meeting or, you know, wants more information about the living room, where would they find more information? Um, okay, great. So, um, so we have a, a great website. Thank God we're trying to get our, uh, we've gotten ourselves organized a lot. So there's a website, tlrfamily.org, um, that if, if somebody's looking for help that has all the information of where the meetings are, there's a contact list that will send an email to a staff member who will reach out to them and get them connected. Um, new people, it's really important. It's most effective if they don't just show up. It's most effective if they speak to a staff member, A, to make sure that they're coming to the right place because at the end of the day, we'd love to help everybody, but 
if people that come, it's not the right place, it's not helpful. It's not, it's really not helpful to them. And we can try to help them find the right place for them. Um, but also it's just a good way to transition and kind of feel okay and not feel overwhelmed because it can be overwhelming um, to be in that kind of space. So it's great to reach out through the website. Um, so that's tlrfamily.org. And also Our Place has a general website, ourplacenewyork.org. And you can access the TLR website from there as well. It's got all the information, all the different meetings. It's not, it's nothing fancy, but it's, it's there, it's accessible. And that's, uh, all, that, that's all we need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'm noticing behind you, there's a sign that says consciously the podcast. Yeah. Is that a podcast that you run? Yeah. So part of the, thank you for asking about that. That's nice. Uh, so, so part of what we've done over the last few years is we started this, this project called the light revealed, which is focused, as I said, on, uh, creating and putting out, um, Jewish content that's mental health and recovery informed. Part of it is also about creating a platform for young people to, and I'll talk about that in a second, to have a platform for them to share their, um, their light. So it's the, the light revealed. And there's a lot of ways that we're doing that. And part of that project is I have two podcasts. One is called Consciously the Podcast. There's an interview component to it. I also like go through the 12 I went through the 12 steps. I I I did I do some other kind of essay style uh, episodes. And then more recently, I'm really what the goal has been the entire time. I started interviewing young people and they're not there to share their stories. They're not sure to share their their war stories, as they would call it in recovery, they're there to share their hope, their light, what's working for them. Because, you know, these young people, they're not all in recovery. They're just young people that are awesome. Some are in recovery, some are not. We don't really, we try not to acknowledge who's in recovery or not because it's just young people doing awesome things. And that's something that we plan to do more and more on the Consciously podcast. And I actually have a, another podcast I'm involved with called Practically If I Bring In, which is like a based on Chabad Hasidus with my mentor, um, Mayor Prager, which is great. It's very like recovery friendly um, talks and ideas that are rooted in Hasidus. Um, and then I'll we have a couple other out. podcasts. Yeah, thank God. Thank God. So it's great. Very excited to check these out. Thanks for sharing this. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the platform. I'm just trying to get the word out. We don't promote things, but just kind of if I have an opportunity to put it out there. Why not? So Absolutely. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. So when you're not being Menachem Posansky in, um, in, um, TLR. What, yeah. what, what else are you doing? What do you do? You know, what else? Fun. What's, what else can you share? <laughs> tell us, tell us what else you could share about yourself with us. Oh, thank you. That you're comfortable um, to that's share. nice. It's fun to talk about myself. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm married. I have a wonderful wife, Naomi, and we live in the five towns and I have two awesome children, Zoe and Tani, who are awesome. And I'm very pleasantly um, blessed that they you know, participate in the things we do. They've been on my podcast. Um, so I know any, like, you know, they're awesome. They're great kids. Um, and uh, so I get to be a dad. I get to be a husband. I have an awesome family. My, my siblings, my wife's family is really awesome. Um, I've also, um, I write, thank God. It's really, really meaningful. I wrote those two books. I'm in the midst of publishing a, a third book. Um, and I really love writing them. It's like, it's my passion. It's, it's my therapy. Aside from my therapy, it's my therapy. It's, it's where I, I process things. I, I'm in the middle of publishing another book on overcoming unwanted habits, which is kind of like trying to focus in on people that are, have not yet met the, or not meeting the scale of like say addiction, but are struggling to overcome those and pathways that are rooted in um, Jewish texts, classical Jewish texts. So that thank God is going to be coming out soon. 
um, and I'm working on a, a, some other stuff. Um, and uh, I'm also, I do some consulting. I'm actually working on an awesome project. If I could, you know, uh, promote that. There's a new treatment center that opened up in Jerusalem called Genesis, Genesis Treatment. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's not for everybody, but it's a remarkable resource for the Jewish community. I'm like very, very excited about it. It's a very unique platform that's going to, that creates adaptive treatment opportunities for people, either as a secondary step down. So people that go to it, intensive initial treatment can have a space where they can go to Jerusalem for, to go to Yushalayim for three months and have amazing top of the line, highest end therapy and supportive living, but also primary treatment and, uh, and, and then also serving the the young adult community that's there because uh, there's a, an outpatient component. So I that's something that's taken up a lot of my time right now. Um, thank God I've had the privilege of teaching at, at uh, Sarah Schneer and YU um, in their social work program. I just completing a semester there. And uh, generally I'm also clumsy and a total knucklehead. <laughs> and I spent a lot of time with my dog, um, Lucy, um, which is, my, is, is another thing. So, uh, so that's another kind of preoccupation of my time. So oh, you, sound like uh, a, you sound like a busy guy. I try to keep busy. You know, I, I used to not be so busy. And then if I can like frame it this way, you'll apologize. But I was exposed. I, 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 I didn't grow up observant in my earliest childhood. And then um, my family became observant when I was in my like older childhood before my, before my adolescence, I was like a 10, nine, 10, 11, my family became religious. And then I went to like uh, more, um, Litvish type yeshivas. And I was very, very much a misnagid. But part of my journey has been kind of opening the door to Hasidus and particularly Chabad Hasidus. And I'm very enamored by Chabad Hasidus. And thank God my Hisnagdus was totally stripped away. And now I've become very enamored by the Rebbe. And one of the consequences of being connected to the Rebbe is that I don't have any time. Ah, I'm constantly pushed to do more and more and that's more. That's so phenomenal. And it's it's very invigorating. I don't I don't mean it like in a I, I mean it. Unhe like, it's not in an unhealthy way. It's in it's an no no. It's thank a, God. It's a very thank God. I think right. I think it's I, I think my wife definitely keeps me very balanced. But it's just this you know what can I do more? What can I do more? The Rebbe is it's a it's a very phenomenal thing. I'm very enamored by you know I don't look the part and I'm not like in the frame at this point of my life. But I'm very much connected. I mean, I go to the OL every week. It's I'm very enamored by what the Rebbe and his Hasidim accomplished. And just being in that environment is just, you know, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do in a place of balance while also having tea with your wife at the end of the day? Like that. Yeah, such a good way that of describing very, very it. unique balance. And I'm very just I'm I've swept up in it. So it's just in the last five years, it's just changed everything. So it's just so beautiful. Yeah. Thank God. Thanks for, uh, thank you for sharing that. And I just want to add to that, that yeah. um, as growing up as a Chabad Chassid myself, um, I went by the Rebbe all the time and I saw the people that were there. And, and that's something that really left a, you know, impact on me personally was that when you say, oh, I don't look the part, but so many Chassidim didn't look the part. The, the Rebbe wasn't about the external. Right. I mean, yes, the external is important, but Yes, Rebbe was about what's in the inside, and that's really and it it's shown through. And I remember as a child saying like, "Wow, there's so many different people that are coming to see my Rebbe. This is incredible." 
right. and it, it really gave me a lot of a lot what a lot to think about with regard to how to look at people as well. So that's a beautiful thought. So thanks for sharing that with us. I just want to end off with one last question for any family members that may have a loved one who is in active addiction or mm. perhaps is in on let's you know I don't know if you can answer both, but either in active addiction or in recovery, what is the most important thing that family can do to be supportive to those that are struggling? The most important thing? Yeah. Or if you want to list them, five things, whatever, whatever you The most important list. thing is to realize that the most important thing that they can do is make themselves excellent. Oh. Help themselves. That's the most important thing they can do is take the focus off the person who's struggling and direct the focus towards yourself and be an example for, I don't, I don't want to feel like a, I don't want to like, whatever. I, I could just, it, you know, if we're using a frame of the red, you have to be a lamplighter, which means you have to be lit up. If you're full of anxiety and tension and pressure over a situation that's very anxiety provoking and understandably overwhelming and understandably depressing, you know, then then you can't be of any assistance and help when you're operating from a place of, I, and I, I'm trying to say in a way that's not like judgmental or doesn't acknowledge the inherent, like overwhelming nature of having a loved one who's in addiction, particularly substance addiction. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming. And also addicts have a tendency to drive everyone around them nuts, like completely nuts. It's just the nature. It's just like they, addicts, impose codependency on everyone around them. It's just the nature of their disorder. It's the nature of the way that addiction works in the underlying. It's all unconscious. It's not it's something they set out to do. They, they happen to be codependents. People that are naturally codependent tend to be attracted to people like that. Um, but even there's no, no stench of or, or amount of, of codependency or narcissism you know, when someone becomes addicted to drugs, the, the process of management and control of symptoms and how I feel in the moment and getting everyone to do what they, I need them to do so that I can get what I need to get so that I can be okay, imposes this kind of very toxic um, environment on a family. And the only way, the most important, not the only way, I don't want to say that. The most important thing that a family needs to do is disengage from that process. It is very difficult to get out of the ring. But when you're in the ring with somebody who's in an addiction, I say this all the time, anyone who's spoken to me will hear this and then roll their eyes. But it's like being in the ring with Mike Tyson. Like, And being in the ring with Mike Tyson is terrifying. But if you get out of the ring, Mike Tyson's just another guy. If you're in the ring, you're, you're done. You know, you're finished. You need to get out of the ring. And the ring is the layers of manipulation, the anxiety, everything that your system is telling you to do, to be anxious, to control, to be over, to, to, to be depressed is what you need to not do. And that requires tremendous strength to live in a loving relationship with an addict and not be filled with anxiety and depression all the time is abject heroism. But that is what a person is called upon. That is what they're being called to. They're being called to live with some of the most complicated things, meaning not where the addict is a, uh, an abusive narcissist. If that's the case, you need to leave, right? But like where the addict's a loving person who wants to get well, but just can't stop, you know, and, and they mean well, but in their addiction, they're just, 
a, a terror. What you're being called to is to step out of that ring in a, in a really heroic and remarkable way. And the only way to do that is to learn how to take the focus off of them and put the focus not on yourself like in a selfish way, but to put the focus on yourself in an empowering way to say, like going back to what we said before, which is a serenity prayer, to accept the things you cannot change, encourage change the things you can, focus on the areas that are in your control, focus on the areas that are in your within your influence, own those a thousand percent. That's the most important thing. The other thing is to, you know, the mother most important thing is to try to fight as least as possible. Not and not that doesn't mean to never fight, because sometimes things are worth fighting for. But you need the more you fight, the worse it gets. So you want to choose a fight very, very carefully. Your those battles. I think are the two most important things. Like I think that's those are really good ones, really important things. Reflect back on yourself what it is that you might be adding to the equation and to the, and to the get out of the ring, stop boxing, get out of the ring. And then you, when you're out of the ring, you can actually think clearly. And then you could actually see exactly. them as another person, another human being, another piece right. of a sham, really right. just that have their own struggle. Um, I really appreciate your time today. I've taken a lot from this conversation personally, and I'm sure the listeners will as well. So thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. There really is so much to process and take in from this conversation. And I know that I have lots to think about as well. If you have any questions or feedback to share on this podcast, I'd love to hear it. So please feel free to reach out through my website at positivecoach.com or on the Instagram at a positive coach. If you would like to not miss any of the upcoming episodes, hit the subscribe button and it will let you know when new shows are released. And if you could take a moment to leave a rating or a review, it would mean a lot to me and it will help others to find our podcast easier. Thank you so much for being here and wishing you a positive day.